0: So we look to uh, Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, verses 13 to 18. I'll reread that small section as we concentrate on those few verses. And this morning we'll be concentrated on the will of God, the will of God. That is the title for this morning's sermon. It is Romans chapter 9, verses 13 to 18, and it is the will of God. Uh, So we look at verse 13. It says, just as it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy for the scripture says to Pharaoh for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. When we look at this text this morning, it was a, it was according to ancient Near East tradition that, Uh, Typically, when you look at how man does things in that particular age, uh, that it was the younger always served the older, that the younger always served the older. Uh, Even related to ancient times, when we consider you can look back at the Bible and you can look back at biblical accounts in the Old Testament, we consider the life of Joseph among his brothers in Genesis. We look at about Genesis 37 to through 50. And it was his brothers who were, according to tradition, according to tradition, highlight that word in your mind, supposed to be heirs over him. So according to tradition, the older were served by the younger. And yet you see, even in that account, you see, Jacob had a profound love for Joseph and favored him over his brothers. And you may be familiar with those events and how Joseph was used to preserve the Genesis 315 seed of the woman. Uh, The promise, which would eventually move toward and away from not only the Abrahamic promise, but uh, but move toward uh, the realization of the land that they were to be provided as they moved uh, through the times of the Exodus and into the land in a partial sense. But in all that, what you see is God doing his way, his will in preserving his people while they were led into Egypt and out of Egypt. But I want to tell you something that happens in that passage because Paul brings it into this text and he brings it in because he's making the case for ultimately God's will over man and God overcoming man's will in order to accomplish his salvation purposes. Particularly, you see that Jacob's love for Joseph, this favor that he has for Joseph in that biblical account, and we bring up Jacob because Paul brings him up. In that biblical account, his love for Joseph overruled tradition. It overruled tradition, it overruled cultural tradition, whatever the cultural tradition was tied to spiritual uh, implications. But his love for Joseph overruled tradition, because that's the word that I want you to understand that is in play. Uh, And sometimes it is against the will of God, this according to tradition. So according to tradition, you have this always, always, always in the ancient Near East, in almost every case, you had the older ruling over the younger. According to tradition. Well, here in our passage, you have to understand something. It is God's will that is in focus. And so many men want to protect tradition against God's will. And so when they come up with what they believe God ought to do or ought to do with Israel or ought to do with the Gentiles, they appeal to tradition. But what I'm here to show you and to give you the same evidence that Paul was trying to give is that God is not so much concerned with tradition if it's against his will. He's concerned with executing his will. So you see that his divine decree, his will in this passage, you will see it in the few verses that we'll look at this morning. You will see that his will and his divine decree are greater than our will. It's greater than our will. And his decrees are greater than our plans. And not only greater than our plans, but greater than man's customs, man's traditions. And that's encouraging for us as we look to the timelessness of Scripture to see the consistency with which God will deal with his people, Israel. That's very important because throughout the ages, so many traditions have sprung up so many customs have sprung up cultural and otherwise religious or otherwise to say this is how God will deal with Israel but we have the written word of God that says this is how God will deal with Israel according to his will and that's what we are concerned with why because that is what Paul was concerned with and that is his whole argument as we look forward throughout the text but even as we look Backward, Because he's dealing with, in a sense, in verse six, who is the true Israel? And then has God's word failed in light of what he plans to do with Israel? Well, the resounding answer is no, because God cannot fail. His will cannot fail. And his word certainly has not failed. So we're left to understand how will God then deal with Israel? And it is a very important thing because you're looking at the fulfilling ministry of the prophets concerning Israel. And then as you look back in the uh, if you look backwards from the new covenant toward the old covenant, you recognize that God always intended to deal with Israel the way that the text portrays. Uh, Verse 13, I'll read it very briefly again, just as it is written, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hate Well, he's already shown that the God who loves is also the God who hates. And the God who loves certainly loves his seed. Those who are cut off from his seed are not the object of his love. They're not the object of his love, but they are indeed the object of his hate. And as you look at this word and you try to understand how might we understand it in its context, there is range in which the way the word is used. And sometimes the word is used to say, That God somehow stalled in his application of love toward Esau. Uh, Somehow it would say that God forbears his purpose toward Esau. And it just runs the gamut of trying to lessen the blow, I believe, of what the text is really saying. The text is really saying that God has in every way you can conceivably think of preferred Jacob in such a way so as to cast aside Esau in the way that he did. And so it does come down to love and hate, but not in the way that you and I would conceive of love and hate. Because typically, even at times Christians, we may fall into the temptation of loving those who can only benefit us. We may only love those who fit our sphere of influence. We may only love those who share in the same uh, particular life experiences and all the rest. But with God, it is strictly concerning his will, the execution of his will. This is how precise God is, that he loves according to his will and he hates according to his will. And it is why I believe the most criminal thing is happening in modern evangelicalism where men are beginning to preach their wills and they're not preaching God's will. Because where you have man's will, you have partiality, you have lust. You have envy. You have greed. I can go on and on and on. But where you have God's will, you have perfect love and perfect wrath. I believe in the context that we ought not soften the blow of the word hate because we look at what takes place in the verses that follow in verses 20 to about 24. Because he begins to talk about vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. So we can't get away from the fact that God is the one who is choosing for himself a people with whom he will grant his mercy toward. And he is, in this text, we'll look at it further, passing over those who are deserving of his hatred. And he is equally inflicting them because they are sons of his wrath. This is the God we serve and this is the God's will Uh, This is God's will that we must align ourselves to, especially concerning the plight of Israel and the Gentiles. But we look at what is said here. We don't escape it. We don't gloss over it. We don't try to say that the words, you know, we, we 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 interpret love literally, but we don't interpret hate literally. I think instead what we ought to do is we ought to understand God. And the sum of his attributes being who he is, the sum of his perfections working together, as our brothers have said, working together at maximum capacity for all time. So when we understand who God is, then we make no apologies to rescue him from any perceived injustice, because Paul's going to deal with that, too. The question that comes out of this, then, if God can love and hate, therefore, can we charge God with some manner of injustice? And Paul's going to answer it right away for us. May it never be. That's not the case. It cannot be so with God. Uh, so we, when we look at this, we understand that God does not love like man does. God can teach man to love in ways that he does. But God does not love like man does. Nor does God hate how man hates. And so God is in himself and His being and in the exercise of his perfections, what the word of God may uh, may cause us to understand related to his personality, his works, his attributes, he is above us in every way. Now, there are some things that you and I possess related to his attributes, although not perfectly, that we can do. We can exercise a degree of love, a degree of mercy. We can exercise Certain things. We cannot be sovereign. We cannot be omnipresent everywhere at all times. We can't be all powerful. But there are things about God that we can be and that we can do and demonstrate that we are indeed crafted in, in His image. Especially believers being born again of a new nature and having, uh, having Him in, uh, indwell you. And so you see that you I mean, you see that Christian can Christians can have the fruit of the spirit in them, but God is altogether different from us. And that is what we have looked at from Romans one all the way to where we are in the text, even moving forward, that everything God does is concerned with his will. He is about exercising the completion of his will. So when we see those who are the recipients of his mercy, as we'll be looking at this text even in an expanded way in the weeks to come. When we see those who are the recipients of his mercy or those who are the objects of his divine wrath, we are not to make apologies for God. We are not to try to rescue God from himself. Because there are many men And women who have proclaimed heresies trying to rescue God from himself, trying to say, you know what, God, I'm going to help you because you look pretty bad in this situation. Let me come up with a theological construct to rescue you from yourself. And you end up preaching heresies when you do that instead of just standing forward and boldly proclaiming this is who God is because this is who God says he is. And so we worship him based on who he says he is. Thankfully, this morning, we are not going to attempt to rescue God from himself. That's not what we are attempting to do. Instead, what we are doing in this text is the same thing that Paul did, that we want to look at what God has said about himself, and we want the scripture to help us test him by his testimony about himself. So the scriptures help us test what God says and test what he does. And we say we agree. Amen. We know that he has done this. We know that he has operated this way. It says it in his word. This is who God is. And now we have to serve him according to who he says he is. I say that there is a sharp contrast because of where Paul goes in verse 14 as well. If we soften the blow of what he says about Jacob and Esau. If we soften that blow, then there's no need to consider the conclusion that Paul believes the reader might take in verse 14. Without the contrast, Paul doesn't say, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God. Is there? May it never be. If Paul simply meant hate as a lesser form of love or something related to love, there's really no contrast. There's simply a delay in the process, and there's no reason for us to think God would be unjust because God will get back to it at some point. But no, he is casting off every person who doesn't belong to him among the Jews and among the Gentiles, and he will inflict them with his wrath. And so one might conclude then that God is somehow unjust for doing so. And Paul raises the question because I believe as we have looked at in other text where there are questions he brings up. I believe these are the charges that Paul faced among his kinsmen for preaching what he did and as he did. So Paul poses this question. And in doing so, one might think that we put God on trial. One might think that we put God on trial because I believe when people come to this text who only want to accent God's love and soften the blow of his hatred they want to put God on trial so they begin to theologically debate all the ways that we can conceivably make God friendlier. but instead what Paul does he poses the question and he essentially is leading us to this reality it is not God who is on trial it is man who is on trial and man is on trial and has to stand before the bar of God's justice and either be in agreement with this person and his will or to be found lacking in those areas and worthy of judgment. So God puts man on trial, even in this text, even in this text. For example, verse 14, he says it plainly. There is no injustice with God. Is there? For Listen to this. If God could choose what he wills, according to the counsel of his will, then listen to this. He is indeed worthy of all praise alone. I'll say it again. If God could choose what he wills, according to the counsel of his will, he is indeed worthy of all praise alone. But if he somehow needs man to help his divine counsel then man would be given cause to think that God is somehow unjust. Well, why? Because we could think of a million ways to do it differently than God. And listen, if that is true, then God would need to operate on my schedule, not his own. And therefore, I get to determine if God is just or unjust for how he deals with the Jews and Gentiles. Now, I don't want the thought to escape you, but there are theological views that actually do this. And as sophisticated as they sound, as mocking as they make it, that God would still somehow keep his promise about the remnant Israel. But what they do is they want God to enlist their help because they believe somehow God has failed so miserably in rescuing Israel that God needs them. That he needs their help. And you know what Paul does? Thankfully, Paul puts a stop to all that kind of thinking immediately. He puts a stop to it immediately. Because what he says, he doesn't let us get far enough in the text and start to make all these arguments. And then says, okay, here's where I land. Here's four views on how God is going to deal with Israel. No, what Paul says is, look at what he says. May it never be. And he's not just talking about... Salvation In a vacuum He's talking about salvation For Israel The true Israel So he says God is certainly not unjust So therefore he doesn't save them all But he doesn't cast them all aside It is within that, within that scope of his will If you consider all the covenants That God is supremely just And Paul says it in verse 14 May it never be May it never be That we would consider God to be unjust or that God would himself be unjust and guilty of injustices. He says, far from it, far from it. And I believe he says this along a few lines. One, God is not on our timetable. He's not on our timetable. So you have people who say, well, Okay God didn't deal with Israel the way we wanted So now we're only concerned with the church age And how he deals with the Gentiles He's not on our timetable He's on his timetable Or you know what God uh, let's Let's just conflate the nation of Israel today With the people of Israel in general God's not on our timetable He's on his timetable And his timetable Is related to the execution Of his redemptive plan As laid out in the covenants As we march from the Old Testament to the New, he is on his own schedule. And he tells man, you need to get on my divine schedule, my divine timetable. And even further, along the way, as you march through the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, all the way to Revelation, you recognize many, many, many things. But along the lines of God's will, you recognize this. All along the way to execute his plan he has overcome the will of those who serve as his divine instruments I don't mean that he makes them divine I mean he is divine for using in the way he does but all along the way he overcomes man's will all along the way he does what he does and overpowers those who stand in his way And he overpowers some to join him. You see it all the way throughout the text. So how silly of it is an argument to say that God wouldn't do that in salvation. That somehow he misses a beat, branches off, and in salvation all of a sudden you in and of yourself can make a decision for Christ. When all along throughout the whole Bible God has been overcoming the will of men. He's been overcoming their wills. And this is exactly what Paul is referring to. And Paul he does it so much throughout Romans and throughout the New Testament and throughout his writings, he brings in prophets. He brings in prophets to show listen, I, I I'm presenting evidence. This is how God has dealt with and through his prophets. Since the beginning of Israel's History, so to speak, related to the Bible. This is how he's dealt with his prophets. In the beginning of his plan, considering all the covenants, God has always dealt with his prophets this way. And he brings in first in verse 15, he brings in Moses. And he says, I will have mercy. He says this to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. He doesn't say, Moses, pick for me. Moses, who do you think I should grant mercy to? Moses, let me think about it. I'm a little bit indecisive. Let me think about who I should give mercy to. No, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is his prerogative alone. And then even further, he raises the stakes. And I'll get to that point, but... What I'm describing to you is not only the will of God, I'm describing God to you. I'm describing who God is. This is God. He does what he pleases. And Paul even writes that in Ephesians 1.11. He does what he pleases according to the counsel of his own will. He does what he pleases according to the counsel of his own will. we always try to look at the modern perspective of what is happening in the world around us related to people who are confessing Christianity because there are some distinctions. And I think there are many, many large ones. We can't even pretend there's one or two large ones. But one of the big ones that we see is man no longer believes, religious man no longer believes That God is acting as he pleases according to the counsel of his own will, because his will is in his word. And you have all these pseudo pop theologians reading theology books. They never read the Bible, so they're able to tell you all the will of man. And even as man tries to explain God's will without going to the actual will of God, which explains what the will of God is. And his will is laid out very plainly, and it's laid out very plainly because he wants you to know how he acts. He wants you to know what he's doing and how he's doing it. But listen, he doesn't need you to do it on his behalf because he can't do it. He elects people to do what he will, but they execute his will and nothing else. He wants them to do his will. You hear a lot of people say, well, pray that you're doing God's will. Try to do God's will. Try to seek God's will. Try to operate in accordance with God's will. But to do that, you have to study the scripture. And then God is spelling out very plainly, here is my will. Here is the will that I have on earth. And then when you read as the Old Testament is beginning to close and you read the life of Christ, you're looking at Jesus. The Christ is saying, here is the will of God. I am the will of God personified. In my teachings, in my actions, in my person, everything that Jesus says and does, he is executing the will of God. So you have all these things. And I suspect sometimes we think, why do I disagree with an action? Am I just the one off? Am I just becoming more and more frustrated? Why do I disagree? Perhaps you are exercising discernment to show you disagree because whatever is being done may look nice and fancy. But it has nothing to do with the will of God. It doesn't have anything to do with his covenants. And I believe that the battle, the fine line of distinction that Paul is making, it is in a religious arena. He's talking about Jews who are preaching, thinking, writing, acting as though they are in concert with God's will and they are absolutely not. So what Paul has to do is make a distinction between them and those who actually are in God's will. He has to do that. That line is so fine that he has to do that. So you have this, the will of God. I believe the trouble that befalls Christians in the arena of their emotions is because they need to be taught how to act in concert with God's will. The troubles that they face when they are out of concert with God's will is the lucrative business of counseling people further away from God's will and pretending you're counseling them toward God's will. It is such a fine distinction. My point in saying that is because his will is laid out so plainly related to Israel and the Gentiles. We're looking at a larger, at a smaller scope of a larger text, but from Romans 9 to 11, he even tells us how to act toward not only Israel, but toward one another because all these things are taking place. He says, I'm executing my will. Here's how you had better conduct yourself because that's true. But this is God. He does what he pleases according to the counsel of his own will, as Paul writes. But I'll tell you. The world in which we live in, and it's no different in many ways from the world that Paul wrote, uh, from within the world that Paul wrote, man wants to earn. Man wants to earn his keep. He wants to earn his way. He wants to work for his own self, especially in the arena of being understood as righteous. In and of himself, he wants to stand in position before God and listen to this dress him up even more, give him more theological education. And if that's all he has, he not only wants to contribute, he wants to give God counsel. He wants to give God counsel. He wants to not only be a mediator before God, he would then stand before God and say, Lord, if you're listening, let's do it this way. It'll make more money. More people will see it. It'll look like more more grander scale. You don't necessarily have to select the foolish. Let's just select the so-called wise and let's do it this way. Because that's what man wants in his flesh. And this is when it happens. I know it's been designated and tagged as a virtue because let's be honest. We live in a very similar rabbinical culture when it relates to religion and Christianity confessed. We live in a rabbinical culture. But when it happens, it's not some act of sincerity. When people try to do and execute God's will and it's not in concert with his will, they can't give you chapter and verse. They can't give you a true biblical justification. When that happens, it's an act of the flesh. It's the flesh. Because what the flesh is saying, when you will not do it God's way, you're saying God needs my help because his way is not adequate. And I believe his way is clear. And this is not only me saying this, and it's not only Paul saying this. Let me give you evidence from the psalmist in this area of God's will. We believe with the psalmist when he says in Psalm 115, uh, verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. Listen to this. He does whatever he pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. I mean, wouldn't that put a stop to every kind of form of pragmatism and pragmatic actions that people are taking to say this is God's will? Well, let me narrow down that field. All the pragmatism that's introduced as astute theology concerning how he's going to deal with Israel. Well, God, he does whatever he pleases. And so we have to figure out what he does by what's written about himself. He reveals, I'm going to deal with Israel this way. And you and I can't say, well, I, I don't know. I wouldn't do it that way. I would do it this way because we're the church and we're growing. I would just replace Israel. Well, no. God says, I'm going to do it the way I please. I have reserved for myself a remnant that I will deal with at such a time that's marked off by the tribulation error. And I'm going to deal with them. Sure, there's a nation there that's calling themselves Israel. But I'm going to deal with my Israel the way I Please, according to my counsel, according to the covenants that are clearly laid out in Scripture. Oh, and don't add to the covenants and say there's multiple ones in addition to what there are because he's dealing with them according to the covenants. I mean, there's such a simplicity to who God is in this. And people want to just add and pile on to his will and say the will's inadequate. And, you know, hey, read this theologian, read this guy, read what he thinks. No, I want to read God. Because God is telling me what He wants to do and how He's going to accomplish it. And I'm not crazy for saying, I want to go to the main source. In fact, if you want to be theologically astute, you have to consult God. You have to consult God in His Word because that's where His will is testified very plainly and laid out. So God essentially... As he's in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases because this is what Paul is concerned with. He's preaching the same God that was in the Old Testament that is in the New. The same God doing the same things. God can choose whom he wants to bestow mercy and he can give compassion to whomever he wills. He can do it to whomever he wills. He's God. And listen, if man wants to contribute something, if man truly wants to contribute something... The only thing that man can contribute is the gift of faith given to him by God to respond as man ought to. And so even when I find myself in concert with God's will, I don't boast in the ability to be in concert. I praise God. I make his name known because he's given me the faith to do so. According to the Abrahamic promise, according to the outworking of the Davidic covenant, according to the fact that I'm found in the one who fulfilled perfectly the Mosaic covenant, because even if I existed in that era, I too would be guilty of all the sins that would find me severed from the Mosaic covenant. And yet in the new covenant, I am found righteous in Christ because of his righteousness. And therefore, therefore, because of that, I now have the faith I need to be aligned to his will. And so he gets all the glory for it, not me. I don't begin to say, well, yeah, I've been walking with the Lord for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. So worship me. Give me anniversaries. Praise me. Name things after me. I don't have to do that because I'm in concert with his will because I'm endowed and indwelled with the same power that is inherent in every Christian to be in concert with his will. If I teach the people that it is the spirit who opened their eyes, it's not me who opened their eyes. It's not Paul, the apostle who opened their eyes. It is Christ who opened their eyes. And when you understand rightly who Israel is and how God intends to deal with them, that is no occasion for boasting in yourself. It is, as Paul will say later, an occasion for humility, because you recognize you could be severed much quicker than the non-remnant Israel has been severed. You could be partially hardened this hour like the remnant Israel is partially hardened and will soon meet with their salvation. But in this case, we do not boast in any way in our own wills, in our own intellects, our own abilities. Because even the mercy and compassion you have, you did not muster that up for yourself. It was God who gave it. Remember when we started Romans, I said, this is about God. People typically, when they talk about Romans, they make it about all the micro-debates that concern the doctrines that are listed. It's a pillar of justification. It's a pillar of this. But really, all those things tie us back to who God is. And so then we fall before God and we fall on our faces and say, this is we're standing before God. In verse 16, we realize even as he discusses the plight of Israel, because if you recognize that God will bestow mercy on his people, Israel, as he designates them, as Paul has outlined who they are, And he will give them compassion based on his own divine will. We don't need to create an Israel. We don't need to eliminate an Israel. And we don't need to replace an Israel. What God is essentially going to do is he's going to save his Israel. So now we have to pray for his Israel and their salvation. And we have to see to it that we're a part of uh, we're part of contributing that by the testimony and proclamation of his word. But verse 16, he goes further than this realm of mercy and compassion. Look at this. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It's almost like if Paul stopped at 15, that would be enough. But Paul wants to counter every single high and lofty thought that man would have about himself to think he's deserving of anything except wrath. So it is not... And listen, this is true of Christianity as well. And it's certainly true of the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament Jews. It is not when man is willing and ready to finally take up the cause of Christianity that such a person becomes a Christian. It's not when man is willing and ready to finally take up the cause of Christianity and somehow for man to decide to follow Christ on his own accord. I recognize how many people... In the annals of so-called reform theology, Calvinism, neo calvin all the disciplines that are coming out, that they would say that and then they would operate as though that's not true. That they would say, yeah, it's, it certainly depends on God and the, and the will is constrained to the nature. And they would make all those arguments and yet when they show up on a Sunday, they function as though man has a stake in the decision-making process of his own salvation. Everything they do in the way that they treat and engage man acts like man can bring himself to a standard of righteousness. But what I'm saying is it's not only good to preach it, you should actually practice it and demonstrate that whatever happens, it is the power and the word and the will of God that causes people to run to himself. I'm not counting converts that fall before God under the sound of my voice. What I want to do is I want to be aligned to God's will. And if I'm aligned to God's will and I'm explaining it plainly and people understand it, then God will win people to himself based on his word and he'll receive ultimate glory for it. He'll receive all the glory for it. But listen, Paul's not only jumping forward to the time in which he writes in the New Covenant in in the context of uh, of the Romans. But he's also making the case for the Old Testament. He's saying God never operated in such a way where he waited for man to somehow decide for himself to come to him. So a lot of people make the right argument that this isn't something where man could bring him uh, could bring his own salvation to bear within himself, that man could somehow make a decision for Christ. Or to somehow bow down and worship Yahweh and yet be made righteous in and of himself. I'm saying that's never been the case. And if it's never been the case and people believe it's the case in the New Testament, then you have a different God. Because God's never operated that way. Not with Israel and not with the Gentiles. He's never operated that way. It's always been about him electing whom he chose to bestow mercy and compassion and salvation based on the counsel of his own will. That's always been the case in the Old Testament all the way to the end of the age. So it's not when man is ready and willing. Man's will is not autonomous. That means free from all constraints, operating independently of all things. Man's will is not autonomous. That's why when people bring up free will, what they're really trying to argue for is autonomy, independence, that is. When man can operate on his own accord with no real consequences or implications. But man's will is never that way. Paul deals with that even in Romans. Man's will is not autonomous or free to choose righteousness over unrighteousness. Man's will is not in that way. Instead, man can And will only choose according to his nature. And specifically, before he's saved, he only chooses according to his fallen nature. So someone has to act upon that fallen nature for him to choose as he does. Someone has to act upon that nature for him to choose. Man's will is constrained always to his nature. And so because God is never fallen... God can never receive counsel from man because God is altogether above man. What man needs is someone to overcome his will. What the Israelites needed is for God to overcome their will. What the prophets needed to prophesy was for God to come to them and to overcome their will so that they prophesied. In the New Covenant, what New Testament preachers need is for God to overcome their will as they were once fallen and now born again to proclaim the excellencies of the kingdom. God has to act upon the will and overcome the will. If you believe that you can contribute to elevating your will to righteousness, you will command celebration of yourself as though you have done something in your own accord. If you believe that only God can act upon the will like this, you will begin to exalt the name of God alone. You will testify as though someone, capital S, has acted upon me in such a way that I could not act upon myself. And he can do the same for those of you if you confess your sins and repent before him. That is the message. It's not celebrate me because I've done something great. And this is. What I believe is the distinction for Paul, because, again, you're looking at this through the lens of the covenants, that everywhere that everyone has opposed God, they wanted to make a name for themselves. Remember the Tower of Babel, making a name for themselves. Remember, as we studied in Daniel, wanting to make a name for themselves, all the kingdoms of this world, wanting to make a name for themselves, but not God. His will is constrained to his name. His will is constrained to his name. He's going to make his name great. As we look, we look finally at this dependency that man himself must have on God because it does not depend on the person who wants God's mercy or passion or on the one who wills it so. As I've said, man cannot do so on his own. It depends on God. So you're looking at the mark of what people call sovereignty, the rule and reign and power that God has over all things. You're looking at power. God shows that power that he has over his enemies, particularly when he brings in Moses. He talks about the words he speaks to Moses in displaying his power in delivering the Jews from the hand of Pharaoh. He goes to his direct power. To harden the will of Pharaoh, listen to this, capitalize on the hardened will, and outright overcome the will of Pharaoh altogether. He deals with his direct power in hardening the will of Pharaoh, capitalizing on the hardened will, and outright overcoming the will of Pharaoh. This is the Exodus account where you see this happen. You see that God has always operated this way on behalf of Israel. He displays his power in Moses and also overcomes the will of Pharaoh, even as Pharaoh tried to resist the will of God. God hardens Pharaoh's will, and Pharaoh's will is also hardened, and also overcomes Pharaoh's will to bring about his plan for delivering the Jews. In other words, simply put, he does what he pleases. He does what he pleases. And yet today, man is so torn up about what takes place on Capitol Hill and government, thinking that maybe the same God needs social media campaigns, political campaigns, merchandising, clever conferences to overcome the will of rulers, powers and principalities. But if you want to know how God operates in the realm of dethroning all powers, look at the Exodus. You just look back at here's how he did it. In that covenant, and now we are established in a better covenant. So now the full testimony and clear revelation of the king of kings is before us. And so we don't have to take upon ourselves contemporary methods to initiate the will of God. We don't have to do it that way. We don't have to take our cues from society. Man does not need to elevate his efforts to help God. He doesn't need to elevate his efforts. And if somehow if I just keep count, if I keep score, then God will be pleased with all these things I did and it will inspire him to act or show us that he's acting. No, he needs to elevate his view on who God is and then go out. You elevate your view on who God is by reading the testimony of who he is and finding yourself in agreement with that by His spirit. And then you go out and you proclaim that God. So man needs to stop trying to exalt his own track record as the Israelites were doing and look here to Romans to truly understand God's perfect track record. He will do as he pleases. He will conquer and overcome the will of his enemies. This is how God acts. Well, well, how how do we know God's going to deal with the remnant? Listen to this. He will conquer and overcome the will of his enemies and he will conquer the will of his friends. And he'll do so whenever he pleases, except he tells you approximately when he'll do it, but he'll do so whenever he pleases. So we don't need any constructs to develop to help God initiate or activate his plan. We don't need that. We don't need to sit around in posh offices and meetings and figure out how can we help God? Because it just seems he needs to speed up the clock a little bit. We don't need to do that. He's on his own schedule. But listen to this. Some might say the speech I'm giving you or the manner in which I'm talking, the sermon I'm giving, but the manner in which I'm talking is a call for inaction. No, because that's not what Paul was calling for. Paul is not calling for inaction because in the historical sense, we are dealing with the Roman Empire. We're dealing with the Roman Empire. So they were about as oppressive as it gets concerning a regime that was trying to take away the understanding of his people, Israel. Because remember, the Roman Empire was joined with the apostate Jews for a while. So they were trying to redefine what it meant to be Jew and bestow the empire's blessings on those who hated Christ. And Paul is saying, but they're not the true Israel and the Roman Empire is not the true kingdom. So it's all illegitimate. So you're dealing with this government context. He's not silent concerning government. Instead, what is Paul doing? He's saying you want to fight? If you fight, you have to essentially act in complete concert with God's will and his person. You act in complete concert with his will and his person. And, And the issue today is it is a great one. But it was also as wicked and growing in wickedness in both scope and how things are visibly done. But it was wicked then, too. And my point is, it will grow worse and worse. But our methods don't change because the methods are all powerful to dethrone rulers because of the one who dethrones rulers. The method comes from him. But too many today are claiming to worship God, yet making him seem to be too archaic and. And dated to handle modern affairs. And I believe that some of that is what Paul is dealing with as he relates to the will of God. But listen, he acts for his own name. He acts for his own name, not our name. It's for his name. It is that he does what he does even within salvation and deliverance of his people. He'll not only save his people, he's going to deliver them. He's going to deliver them. Jews and Gentiles, what's in purview of the text is are uh, Jews, but he's going to deliver Jews and Gentiles and he's going to act in concert with his name. Therefore, his word cannot and does not fail. His name is tied to all of this. And he acts not only to have his name tied in, but to exalt his name over all the earth. And he does not share his glory. He does not share his glory. See ministries, see men who want to tell you about God's plan for Jews and Gentiles. And if any of their glory is mixed into it, just recognize this warning. God does not share. He does not share his name and his glory to make man greater than he is. He doesn't do that. Men play that game. God does not play that game. And so you look at even Paul is bringing all this to bear. And I bring that up because look at this verse 17 for the scripture says, to Pharaoh, listen, for this very purpose, I raised you up. Why? To demonstrate my power in you. That what my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Well, what is God's will to have his name proclaimed throughout the whole earth? That is what he wants. He doesn't want my name proclaimed throughout the whole earth. He wants his name proclaimed throughout the whole earth, and he will not take any challengers. There are no worthy challengers. It is his name. I believe what Paul is getting the people in the midst of persecution and all things back to is they have to proclaim his name. It's God's name. There is power in the name. And there's power in God who exalts his name. As we transition the next time to the next section, you have to understand God acts in this way of mercy and hardening to make his name known. That's why he does it. That's why he does it. So all the Arminian versus Calvinism debates that want to talk about in the process of salvation, who is responsible. You have to understand which one. Truly considers, and I'm not even saying both do it at all times the right way. I'm saying what considers, biblically speaking, how is God's name exalted? Because you can put any construct around a belief system, but if God's name isn't in it, then it's not about God's name. It has to be about God's name being exalted. So as we look at this next section, we look at he does what he does in hardening and mercy to exalt his name And he does so to whomever, however he pleases. So next time we'll look at this closer as Paul is leading up to the riches and glory of salvation for both the Jews and the Gentiles. And how God acts on our behalf to bring us to himself. Let's pray.